You're listening to Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin. Hey everyone, it's Michael Jamin. Welcome to another episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This. I got another great guest today. This is my old buddy, Steve Baldakoski. Steve has written on some of the some of your favorite shows, as long as your shows favorite shows are. <laughs> Yeah. As long as, as, long as, they are, as, as long as you have terrible taste and only watch <laughs> shows that are gone after 13 episodes. And then, then these are your favorite shows. But I'm gonna start. I'm gonna in no particular order of although I think I'm going in order. Teen Angel, Working, remember that show? Dag with David Allen Greer, Baby Bob. Oh, we're gonna talk about Baby Bob. Okay, yeah. AUSA, Andy Richter controls the universe. People like that show a lot. I, I'm with her or I'm with her. 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 Yeah. <laughs> eight, eight simple rules. The new adventures of old Christine. That was a good show. The Jake effect. Big shots. True Jackson. I forgot you worked on that. Wilfred, which you could thank me for. Glenn Martin's DDS, which you could thank me for. Kirsty, which I can thank you for. Uh, Last Man Standing. Whatever. <laughs> Which, like, yeah. Save I don't have me. anyone to thank for that. No uh, one should be thanked for that. Save me. Uh, 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 Jennifer Falls, Ned and Stacy. And then, of course, you were the executive producer and showrunner of Fuller House, the Full House remake. Steve, welcome yes. to the big show. <laughs> thank, thank you for having me. It's very like exciting to be here. Wasn't it exciting? Man, oh, man. Oh, and I have to say, so, yeah, so we started out. Um, my partner and I hired Steve and his partner, Brian, on, on Glenn Martin DDS. And we were always very grateful. These guys turned in great drafts. And we were always extremely grateful. Oh, thank you. And then we would just shovel more work. And as for, for gratitude, we would just shovel more scripts in your face. Write this one now. <laughs> that was one of the highlights of my career. That was that some was, of the best times I've ever had. We had some, you know, it's funny. I asked um, Andy Gordon in, uh, in, a, in a previous episode, I said, and I'll ask you the same question. If you have, if you could go back in time and either remake any of the shows you did worked on or like reboot it or just work on it again, what, what would they be? Any? Hey, I thought you were going to tell me Andy's answer. <laughs> Andy said, uh, if you want, Andy said, just shoot me and True Jackson. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, Glenn Martin was a highlight and, uh, and I think it was an underappreciated show. It certainly and, was. Uh, if, if it weren't in claymation, maybe uh, someone would have watched it. You know, um, we, we went on the internet, Sievert and I, my partner and I, we went on the internet and we found some guy talking about Glenn Martin. And it was as if he was in the writer's room. It was as if he was, because he he was right on the money. <laughs> like he knew what was good about it, what was bad about it. He had theories as to why this stuff. I, I think you're, made it in. you're talking about Alex Berger, the creator. <laughs> it wasn't Alex. It was something like, it was something like, go on the internet but boy he was dead on he was like he knew exactly what he was talking about <laughs> well what one weird thing that that happened to me this is slightly related um when when brian my old writing partner and i took over fuller house in the last couple of seasons it was right before the final season and it was after Lori lachlan had her college uh, issues legal yeah. issues with uh um varsity blues um on April Fool's Day, there was this article in some like Deseret News or something where someone did a whole, it was a fake interview with me, but it seemed like it was real. And the reasonings that they were talking about getting rid of Lori's character and what would happen after, you know, she was divorced from Uncle Jesse on Fuller House, it was so well thought out that it, I thought it had to be written by also someone in the room. Because they actually knew like specific arguments that specific writers had in getting rid of this person. And then it turns out only if you click the very bottom did it say April Fool's and it was all a phony interview with me. But still they got it right. But it was it, it was so eerie that it was it was probably uh, probably had better reasons to include her or not include her than we did. Were so you there are a lot of fans out there who understand the shows just as well as the writers do. I think so. I, I think even on people talk about King of the Hill and they remember episodes. I'm like, I don't remember that one. And then I look it up and go, I, I worked on it. I don't tell me what happens. Like, I don't remember it. You know, it's very, you know, very important to some of these people. And, you know, they, they, they watch it all the time. And I haven't watched it in 20 years. But um, 
But did it, you? There was a moment where, when um, on Wilfred, where David Zuckerman, the creator, didn't even know that he had a logic fallacy in the mm -hmm. first episode. Do you know the story? No. I think he was at Comic Con, and he he was he it, it was about the pilot of Wilfred, where Wilfred is trying to get through the fence, and a regular dog would crawl through the fence, but instead Wilfred has an axe. Right. And, um, and then they said, well, shouldn't I take the axe from Wilfred uh, because it's dangerous? And then David said, wisely said, no, you can't grab the axe because that means the axe is real. And the second he said that, someone in the audience held their hand up and said, well, what about the bomb? Yeah, what about the bomb? Yeah. And David had never considered that. Well, but... sure, that was fascinating that that he they had never thought of it on set, but that show gave me, there got him instantly. That show gave me a headache to write. I mean, we were like, what? Yeah. <laughs> and then and then <laughs> your partner Brian's like, I I the dog you, that that anecdote gave me a headache to mention. So <laughs> yeah, right. that out. it was. I remember he just like, don't you think people just want to see the dog dance? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the dog dance. That was his pitch. <laughs> oh man. Oh my God! What a show! But did, did you ever go? That, this whole section is even inside Wilfred. Yeah, this is inside Wilfred. I, I, I don't think anyone would appreciate that. But did you ever, even when you were running Fuller House, did you, did you ever turn to the? What do the fans want? Did you turn to the? Because there's a lot of pressure oh, on that. Actually, I have to say, um, that was a huge part of Fuller House, and it was one of the things I think that the audience loved, and it was a unique situation for me because I had still to this day, I've seen two and a half episodes of the original full house. Uh -huh. so I didn't know anything about full house, but other people did. And so if we would want to throw in, we call them Easter eggs, right. uh, throw in little Easter eggs and bring back, you know, some character that was in an, in a single episode 30 years ago, we would bring those actors back and the audience would go bananas. Yeah, but how can you didn't watch any old episodes or you know there's so much why why didn't i or yeah, why didn't you um well part of it is i i didn't want to actually be beholden to any of the other of the old stories right um because i mean even you know like fuller house is a little bit of an old-fashioned show but we didn't want to make it just like completely stuck in the past and and a show that is only about that's referencing the original show and so feel, I thought it was more helpful just to have a perspective of like what's it like raising you know three kids in you know modern day california but did you feel a, a strong i guess obligation to give, make sure the fans were happy because on most shows oh. the writers are writing for themselves oh, oh for sure um we were doing that constantly and um you know, we we knew it. There were certain things that were like you know throwing red meat to the audience. Oh, you know, kind of like 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 if you're doing the show Fuller House, no, you know, no matter what the story you're doing is or whatever, if you have to, you bring in a dog wearing sunglasses, and the <laughs> audience goes bananas. And then how do you top it? A, a baby runs in wearing the same sunglasses, mm -hmm. and just the, the audience like tears of joy in the because, audience because that's that, that was an old staple in the original show stuff like that yeah i mean that's just the kind of thing kind of. That they would stoop to but it was but it was this it was this the fuller house was a show that like you know it really it really affected me as a writer because it was really that time when Every week, there were 200 fans in the audience, super uh -huh. fans, who knew every single episode of Full House and Fuller House. And so you would get this amazing instant uh, recognition from the audience that you're writing for them. Right. Especially when you would have those little Easter eggs. And you don't get that on a lot of shows. Right. You know, right. like, I, you know, may maybe on your Just Shoot Me uh, you would have just shoot me fans, but every seat every week was a super fan. 
No, the weird thing about Just Shoot Me, you know, because we were there the first four years and the, the yeah. first season, maybe the first two seasons, the, the audience, they weren't fans, they were hostages. There was people who came for free pizza. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, know, you, you could tell they wouldn't want to be there. <laughs> and they yeah. didn't know the show. Get prisoners. Yeah, prison, your, prisoners. Your <laughs> sailors in for Fleet Week. It's basically that. I mean, for people yeah. listening, it's like you show up on Hollywood Boulevard and they hand out tickets. Hey, who wants to see a taping of the show? And then yeah. anybody would show up and they would stay warm. <laughs> <laughs> anybody's get out of the rain uh but no, these, no these were people um who came from not just around the country but from literally around the world to see the show yeah and they would th these people would center their vacation on coming to the show and and so you know i, I mean I, it was also amazing um to be able to like after the show you know if you knew who the people were um you would bring them down and and they would just get a kick out of walking around the set. Mm -hmm. And that was another kind of highlight every week was, you know, having these people, you know, have this awesome experience that they've grown up with these characters in the set. Um, and then they're running around on the set, you know, now that they're grown up and they've got kids who, who like the shows. Now the and set was a remake. That, was, that was kind of amazing. Cause you would, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just fans. It was two generations of fans. Right. You know, it was like people who are sort of our age and then their kids. Right. And and so, you know, when network people talk about family co-viewing, it really was that. It was, you know, parents who still love the show. But it wasn't, the set was a remake, right? It wasn't the actual. It, it, it was a remake, but I'll, I'll tell you, and this is also part of the weird experience coming onto the show because neither, you know, I had no appreciation really for Full House at the time. Um, so before the first show, and this was the entire first season before it aired on Netflix, um, there was a curtain um, mm. covering the set. And before they would announce the actors, they would they would lift the curtain like it like it was <laughs> like at the theater. Right. And the first time for the shooting the pilot, when they revealed that to the audience people burst into tears wow just seeing the set and the couch looking just like it did in the 80s um and the way they really really mimicked the original set you know to the inch because they right. had the plans um it was amazing to see people moved by a set yeah i bet I and bet. uh yeah um and so so that was pretty unusual and then any line would get, even a mediocre line would get an uproarious laugh from the audience because they were all, they've been waiting for 25 years to see this moment. Now, I imagine you had some of the writers in the show who grew up with watching the original Fall House, who knew more about the show than you did. Who? Oh, oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's why also I felt I didn't need to see the show right. so that much. I'm not recommending people shouldn't do homework. <laughs> <laughs> now... One uh, of the things that shocked me when we when we were working with you, this is long many years ago, and maybe it was only after season one or something, you shocked me when you said that you at one point you were you started as a network executive. I was like, you what? What? Um well yeah, stu a studio executive. Studio. Um, so yeah, sorry. Yeah, I was I was uh I was like a director of comedy development at Universal. And so tell tell us what, what that means. So, so, I mean, should, should I go back further? Could yeah, go like, back to where you want to start. At that point, I mean, I never, I never set out to be a writer. I don't even know if you know any of my origin story about this. Oh, no. I never really set out to be a writer. Um, I always loved TV, but I also loved music and, and movies. But didn't even know I was going to get into the entertainment business um, until I was trying to blow a year or two before I would get a little bit of work experience and then go back to go to law school. You're going to go to law school. Get an MBA. And I was never going to be a part of the entertainment industry. But I just lucked into what turned out to be a great job in the mailroom at United Talent Agency, UTA. Okay. And um it was like this moment that UTA was on the rise. And um I yeah, you know, I was in the mailroom where I'm literally working 80 hours a week delivering mail and reading scripts for free and writing coverage. 
doing that for five months. Then I got on a desk. I worked for Nancy Jones and Jay Suris. Oh boy. Uh, I was their first assistants at United Talent, I believe. And then um and then I knew it wasn't for me because it was really cutthroat. Yes. Uh, I, I was learning what I didn't want to do and um work in a traditional office. That led to um I got a job in development. I worked at Aaron Spelling Productions, and then that job got me. Wait, but how did you get a job in development? Because it is hard to make the transition from being an assistant at a desk to having a non-assistant job anywhere. Oh, oh, I, I was still an assistant for oh, okay. two years. I was an assistant for spelling for one year. Mm. Then I was an assistant. I worked for Jamie Tarses at NBC. Right. And that's and that was kind of the the, the pivotal moment in my career. Because um, kind of anyone who was Jamie Tarses' assistant moved on to become the next executive and right. so that kind of became my path um uh i was I, I never set out to do this but i just kept getting a job that was just better than the last one mm -hmm. so i never had the reason to go back to law school and right. it was just like they kept on dragging me back in with a slightly better job so this one year i spent as jamie's assistant at nbc um uh fraser had been bought but not shot and then jamie bought friends that year i can't remember the names of the other shows but um but like you know being on set at the pilot of friends was really that pivotal moment for me um where i thought oh th this is you know really what i want to do like and i was on the path to being an executive but i really would look over and the writers seemed to be having a lot more fun and that's where I, I didn't really even know it, but that was that was my path to be to being a writer was just kind of hanging out at NBC and, and seeing how things, you know, being a but part even of when you were a, an executive development exec, were you thinking I want to be a writer? Or were you thinking nah, not really? I, I knew like the executive path was like was fine. And I did that. And on the executive path, when you're no longer an assistant, you get bumped up uh, and you get the office and. It was very kind of, there were a lot of fancy trappings. I would wear a suit and I drive around all the networks trying to sell half hour comedies uh, to the networks. And it was, uh, it was a good job, but there was just something I still kept on looking at, you know, the writers who were on the floor and thought they were having more fun. But do you, and you were giving notes to writers as yes. an executive, do you at any point feel like I don't really? How might who might be giving notes to a writer when they? Oh, might... I I felt that all the time, and because I felt that, because I kind of had so much respect for what the writers did, yeah. that it was it was hard for me to give as many notes, because I thought the writer probably already had thought these things through. Uh huh. But where were you I, getting I, your notes from then? What's that? Where were you getting your notes from? Where were you getting your opinions from? Well, I I have a, opinions just like I wouldn't have I wouldn't have when I was starting out. I go, I don't know, looks fine to me. I mean, you're you're sort of clued in to to what your boss likes. Mm -hmm. You also have your own tastes. You you kind of know what the project is supposed to be. Um, uh, um. I yeah, I don't know. I, there there's no formal executive school on how to give notes that's why it's kind of, it's kind of a weird job because there's no training for it i don't really necessarily know what makes you good or not good and some a lot of it is just opinion but i, I sometimes you'll get the same notes which are fair which is a you know start the story sooner whatever that's a great note that you're this totally valid note <clears throat> but sometimes I, you know i've been in meetings and you're like you get a note and you're like but that's just your opinion this doesn't make it better or worse Yes. And, and I mean, obviously, you know, that's something you, you will struggle with till the end of time, yeah. but, but I also always go back to, you know, I think there's a, there's a cartoon about this at, at some point, but, but like if Shakespeare handed in Hamlet, mm -hmm. his agent would give him notes yeah. and he would say Hamlet is inactive. Yeah. And then you would make him a swashbuckling hero. Yeah. Right. Yes. And that would ruin Hamlet. So, so like, you know, and the problem is that like that that agent's note would be a well well guided note. Yeah, like How much that is that? a mm -hmm. is a valid thing for him to say, but it also ruins the inherent art of the piece. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. Ain't that a kick? <laughs>
But then not that writing Glenn Martin was the equivalent of Shakespeare. Uh, in many ways. But it was pretty close. It was a little higher. But <laughs> we had some fun in that show. But um and then when when you wanted to make the transition, I don't know. How, how, how do you do how did you do that? So, so and once like and this is just my case, it was shockingly not that hard. Um my who became my writing partner was one of my best friends from college mm -hmm. and Brian had always wanted to be a sitcom writer um, and just kind of had, kind of flamed out a couple of times. And then he was living in San Francisco and having a really excellent career as a, as an advertising copywriter. And I called him up and I told him I wanted to write uh, a sitcom with him. And he said, no. And then a week or two no? later, he changed his mind. Why did he say no? Because uh, I said, fine, I'm, <laughs> if you don't write it with me, I'm going to write with Sue Nagel. <laughs> oh, That's a true story. Um, well, she wasn't, Sue wasn't, an, Sue Nagel, who later went on to uh, run uh, uh, HBO and then uh, Annapurna, and, you know, she's she a big show, but she, at the time she was, she was, she was not yet an agent or she was a very young one. And, but we, she didn't want to write, did she? So then we got together and, um, to go to a coffee place to brainstorm uh -huh. and we got into a we didn't even make it to the coffee place before we got into a huge argument over what oh i don't i don't remember <laughs> this partnership's not going well <laughs> no it was it was not but but if you can't make it to the place where you're supposed to think <laughs> then it's probably a doomed partnership so anyway brian said yes mm -hmm. and then um so over the phone we wrote a spec news radio back when people still did that yep. and news radio had just been on the air. Um, so we wanted to write a show that we loved and also that there weren't a ton of samples of other specs like that. Right. So we wrote this news radio early on and um, uh, I gave it to Sue Nagel. She liked it. She gave it to Michael Whitehorn at Ned and Stacy, and uh, we had one meeting. Um, Brian flew in from San Francisco. I showed up in my suit from being an executive. I had to sneak out from Universal and not tell him where I was going. Did Michael Whitehart know you were an executive at the time? Yes, he did. Yeah. He didn't. Think but was but but that was actually kind of a good thing because um, Brian was an ad executive, mm -hmm. and Ned of Ned and Stacy right. was an ad executive, and then also because I had, you know, funny corporate stories. Um, I think Michael liked that as well. And the fact he gets two people for a staff writer. Were you afraid to leave your cushy job? Um, less so than Brian. Um, I, if, if I flamed out, I could always go back to being an executive and, you know, that would be fine. Right. And, and in hindsight, that probably would have been the best thing. That Everyone. But yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I, I, I'd be living in Bermuda by now. Yeah, exactly. uh, <laughs> oh, well, you know, uh, learn. Yes. So, but unfortunately I made it through that year and then made it through the next like 25 years. Um, yeah. And so, so that was my, that was my path. And, and it kind of happened really fast that I, so then Michael hired us after that meeting and then I had to go tell my boss at Universal that not only was I looking for a job, but I had one and it was as a writer. Yeah. And, and, then, and so their business affairs made this big stink that they owned my half of my spec script. And what are they planning on doing with it? I well, that, well, I, I asked them that. And I think they were all going to take my spot. Uh, in the writer's room yeah what uh, you're they have they own had your half of a worthless spec script that just got you a job and i don't know it, it was a weird thing but they this but business affairs won't hesitate to sink a deal whenever possible yes. <laughs> we remove the joy out of a writer and they yes they effectively did steal my joy of that moment <laughs> <laughs> oh my god and then, yeah, then the rest was just one show after another, basically. And then, yeah, and uh, yeah, it started out, um, 
we got in at the time there used to be the WB and in UPN, the Paramount Network. Um, I think like in that in that time period, this is like 97, 98, that was like the peak of the sitcom. I think there were over 60 half hour sitcoms on the air. And then Brian and I rode that roller coaster. Hey, it's Michael Jammin. If you like my videos and you want me to email them to you for free, join my watch list. Every Friday, I send out my top three videos. These are for writers, actors, creative types. You can unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm not going to spam you, and it's absolutely free. Just go to michaeljammin.com slash watch list. So tell okay. me about developing your last project. Okay, so the, the last project that I just developed uh i sold it to abc with 20th mm-hmm. um came to me uh because it was so personal to what i'm going through as a dad my mm-hmm. youngest kid uh is non-binary okay and she uh she was born a girl vivian and then around the time she was about the second grade she came to us and said that she she felt that she was a boy. Right. And so that led us down on this journey, um, you know, finding out, you know, like having a trans kid and a uh, non-binary kid and never knowing anything about it. Right. Um, uh, and that kind of led me to want to write about it after I broke up with my writing partner right at the start of COVID. And I was going to have to write my first thing. So I was going to write, um, at first I was actually going to develop step-by-step based on the same concept. I was unable to sell that to HBO Max. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead I redeveloped the idea of me being this like hapless dad, sort of middle-class, uh, working-class guy in rural Wisconsin, which is where my mom's family is from. Um, and then having this tomboy kid that he just loves more than anything, uh, he, her, his Maisie all of a sudden informs him that, no, uh, her name is, she's now Hunter. And uh, you were thinking this as a single camera comedy or what? This was a single <laughs> camera comedy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was structured like a multi-cam, but, but really um, that was from, anyway, that was my spec. And what that led me to 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 do is it got me the attention of uh, other people who were in the non-binary trans world. So then ultimately, I partnered um, just through meeting lots of people. Uh, this woman named Billy Lee, who some people know because Billy Lee was on um, uh, early seasons of Vanderpump Rules. Okay, um, and so it's kind of a like a well-known person in in the trans community. Um, And then so Billy Lee and her friend Priscilla had this idea um, about her own life, which is kind of almost too hard to believe is true. Um, uh, Billy Lee grew up in rural Indiana uh, as a boy, um, left home at 18, found out that he wasn't gay he was actually a she and um, went through the surgeries and then, you know, a a lot of turmoil, but then returns back home and fell in love with her best male friend from junior high. And now they're together as an on and off couple. And so it was, how do I take that and turn that into a half hour comedy? I know it's a long windup, but it's a great story. That is almost hard to believe. Yeah. And um, with her best friend growing up. Yes. And so we pitched it really as a Netflix, HBO, Showtime show that would would show that magic relationship and also have sex and, you know, things that I think would be hard, you know, relatively hard for a, you know, a regular network audience. um, And and it's all. But it sold to ABC because they wanted, there's this great, her relationship with her father is also really what it's about. Right. And 
it's it it is a fa- is also a family show about how it took a trans woman to fix this broken midwestern family right and it's right in abc's wheelhouse and you so know where, where is that now? like a like a connor's but with a strong trans element and where is that right now uh, it's dead every other pilot um yeah i you know i can't i I can't entirely blame them like it it would be uh very uh uh, amazing to see abc put on a show about a trans woman and not have it be one of the peripheral characters yeah um I, i i think that's just a hard sell maybe if i was you know a more powerful writer could could you you know jam that down their throat um but I, I don't think i think the subject matter was exactly their wheelhouse but also maybe too too uh on the bleeding edge for them it, it feels a little like you know some uh somebody somewhere at that hbo show i love that show no oh yeah it's a little similar uh, it, it's 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 not trans but it's it's similar that i don't know that just reminded me of it. it's, great. it's a great show our friend rob cohen directs a bunch of those oh yeah. Oh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, great show. Uh, but so then, okay, so then what What else, like, you, I mean, it's been a while since, you know, since Fuller House, but what was that like? I always ask this, what's it like working with the, because uh, a lot has changed since you and I broke in. What yes. is it like working on with, like, the, the, the new generation of writers? Um, well, luckily at Fuller House, I was still the new generation of writers. <laughs> what was that? It wasn't that long ago. I, I still felt young on the show because because uh-huh. we had people. You no, know, we we had people who uh, were older and oh, right and you know were around the, the original show. And so so it was kind of great to feel like I was on the young side for once. Yeah. Um, but I, I understand what you're. I understand what you're. What you're getting to, um, uh, are, like in terms of how the room has changed. Well, from yeah, started to now, even in terms of preparation, because you know you can answer any way you want, but it like basically there was more when we were coming up. You were on a show for longer. There were more senior writers, and you were constantly learning. And you were never, I never, you were never like thrown into the hot hot water yet. But now I feel like these kids come in, and there's no really training ground. There's no, there's even. No, I think there's an article a couple of days ago. There's no mentorship anymore because no, 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 <clears throat> no. There, there isn't, and you know that's too sad. I think that yeah, I think content in general is as good as it's ever been, mm-hmm. and yet that training system doesn't seem to exist. And I wish it did. Um, when when we first got in around the Ned and Stacy era like there still was that you would still feel that like a showrunner would take someone mm-hmm. under his wing, like Michael Whitehorn did with David Litt yep. and shepherd that person. Cause they would have multiple years of Ned and Stacy. And then luckily that turned into King of Queens. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, so there were schools Mike but- together for a long time. That's the old model. I don't see that anymore. I wish it was there. Um, uh because to to be honest with you like when brian and i made the jump from co-executive producers of fuller house to executive producers it it was like we are being thrown to the wolves after 25 years yes because because of jumping from show to show to show like younger writers do now all the time um i i didn't learn those skills Mm -hmm. and so we didn't really know that much about editing you know sweetening like how's our camera coverage right um you know all all of those little things that you know i had to i had to learn them very very quickly and so luckily i had a a great you know you know crew that all wanted to help us as you know learn as well um uh but uh yeah there is no system i wish there was like i even think like multi cameras, like you back in the day, you'd come out of a school. Like we basically, we, on just show me, we, we kind of came out of the Fraser School because Levitan came out of Fraser, yeah. which came out of the yeah. Cheers School, and it was like that kind of pedigree that you had, and you're just learning from all those people. And then now, like there's so few multi cams. Like if they were to bring back multi cams, well, who's going to do it? Who knows how to do it? Because it's different than doing a single camera. <laughs> it's funny. 
it's funny you say that because that's why I'm calling on to the business. Um, yeah. But I'm hoping I'm hoping that uh, that we can stick around long enough that it will come back at some point. Uh, um, yeah. I, I love the format. Like, I mean, that's that's one of the things that like really spoiled me about Fuller House is, um, you know, I was able to be there for like five years mm. um, and I never really had to worry about, you know, job security. And it, it was this amazing place and we, and there were fans of the show <clears throat> and, and it was just great to write for them. And so that spoiled me, you know, now that that kind of, you know, has gone away now that Fuller House is no longer on the air, Friday night was my drug, you know, cause you know, Friday night, I love putting on a show every week and I miss that. Here's my pitch. Fullest house. Pay me. That's, that's, that's a great idea. A great I wonder. If, I wonder if anyone pitched that to me <laughs> before <laughs> the day I started. <laughs> I wonder if anybody pitched that to me. <laughs> Your shitty joke. Yeah. Yeah. So, was it one of my low IQ children? <laughs> <laughs> well, then. So then, what do you do? So, what do you do now? I mean, uh, you're obviously you're developing, and, and... Um, so so now I, I'm I'm working on a, a a new multi-camera idea. I'm very excited about. And go on. Have you taken it out yet? Yeah. Um, no, I'm just. I I I think I finally have. I have the pilot story. I'm just trying to populate it with all the other, all the other things. Okay, and then and then with, with all the other characters, because. Um, um, I basically started with the central character. Uh-huh. Um, it's kind of high concept. I don't want to give it away. I, I'll right, talk okay. to you off camera about it. Okay. Um, with the central character, and then that led to a bigger world. Um, Just and then now I have to populate that world, um, kind of how to how I want to <clears throat> how I want to fit tonally into that world. There's like it's, it's it's an idea that would to me it feels a little in the vein of what we do in the shadows. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, in terms of a, like a high concept comedy right. idea. Um, and uh, uh, because um, I never worked for him, but like my hero as a sitcom writer is Paul Sims. Okay. And, it, you know, my first spec was Ned and Stacy. I mean, I, I was uh, news radio. Radio, yeah. And which was run by Paul Sims, created by Paul Sims. And now he runs... Mm-hmm. Um, you know what we do in the shadows, which I just think is a brilliant, brilliant show. Uh, so then, what do you have? What advice do you have for people? Do you have any advice for people trying to get into the business now? Uh, we, that's why I'm here. I thought I was seeking advice from you. Yeah, you thought you were. Still, a job <laughs> you. I thought people were. Gonna, I thought people were going to call in and yeah. tell me what to do with my life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the the number one thing is. Like if you want to be a writer, I think you probably have to move to LA, maybe New York. Um, but if you want to be in TV comedy, I think you have to be in LA. Yeah, that's the first thing you have to do is move here, um, and then write all you can. Write things that make you laugh, right. that amuse you, because no one else will probably enjoy it. So you might as well. You might as well. <laughs> <laughs> and and also and also I think you, you you have to get creative you know um uh I think social media is a great way to get noticed mm-hmm. um, my wife happens to be an executive um uh on the TV side and she bought the Twitter feed shit my dad says when she was a while and that was got to be 10 years ago now and yes and and I think that was like the first thing that a network executive or that a network has like bought something on like no one was buying a twitter feed at the time right. and and i thought that was pretty clever uh that wendy started looking at things like that and i i think that's a great place to get noticed yeah I agree. Uh, especially for young comedy writers um does she still do that does she still actively does she look on social media for people like that um she does that she also um she flips through, they get uh, they get proposals of books that are coming out, not even books that have been written, but just titles of book proposals sometimes. Really? And she has scanned through that and 
bought a series based on one of the blurbs that she read about. That I've never heard of that. That was that, that was actually the show Suburgatory. I okay, because that's a good title. It's I've never heard title. that before. So I would I would I've always because my advice to begin people is well, it's got to be a best-selling book, but you're saying Oh, uh, oh, oh, I'm not oh I'm not suggesting that's a way to get noticed. Right. To to write a book, although it's not a bad idea. Um, if you have a great life story, write a book or put it on TikTok. Right. Um uh I think I think just if you have a comic voice, there are a million ways to get it out there. Yeah. Um and uh uh my dear friend, a guy named David Arnold. Um, was a writer on Fuller House and just started showing, you know, doing TikTok videos of of him and his wife and kids. And then he, like, I think Ellen DeGeneres was the first to share one of his videos. And then that blew up for him. And then he ended up, he was getting sponsored and he was a, he was a stand-up comic and it was helping out with his stand-up business. Yeah. And so at the age of, you know, 53, he was discovered on new media you know, and, uh, and what, what uh, become of little tiny sketches about his family. Oh, I, so let's talk about Kirsty, which was you. You were to me that was a lot of fun. So that was the Kirsty Alley show. And yeah, you guys brought us in. They needed a uh, a freelance. I don't know why they, but they wanted to have somebody freelance, even though you got a, a great writing staff. Uh, yeah. And I like we're like we'll do it. And then I think uh, I think our I think uh, I think your agent said that your teeth were falling out. And if you didn't write a script for the medical, oh, not at all. Honestly, <laughs> that show, because that was a bunch of heavy hitters on that show. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. We were only sat, we only sat in for a couple of days. We walked, you guys, we walked in, and then you guys said, "Okay, here's the story." We, we broke it, kind of, go write it. We're like, okay, and um, but it was a. It was, it, it was to show. start uh, Ted Danson. Yeah, and, they, and then yeah. Marco punted it for the next season, thinking it was going to be a season two. Marco, there's no season two. You don't punt that. You shoot it today before, before they pull the plug. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the old we'll use this we'll use <laughs> scripts season two. Yeah, the old season two I, trick. I don't know if that was him being tricked or you being tricked. Uh, I, honestly, we had a great time. Uh, it was a great script. It was a great script. It was fun. It was just fun sitting in with a bunch of people. Yeah. Well, a bunch of writers yeah. that I respected. So no, that was an amazing. That was an amazing experience. I, I. We like Cloris Leachman did the show, like mm -hmm. some really, you know, uh, we we wrote an episode for John Travolta. Yeah. Um, it was Michael and, Richards and Rhea Perlman. And it was like, these are good, these are heavy hitters. These are great actors. So the, the night that uh, Cloris Leachman did the show, we went out for drinks afterwards uh -huh. with her. And I ended up sitting next to Kirstie Alley's uh, assistant. And it wasn't until about 10 minutes into my conversation when she mentioned reincarnation that I realized that uh, I was talking to a high level Scientologist. And then I, and then I noticed she was doing all these Scientology tricks with me, like deep, deeply staring into my eyes and not blinking until I blink. It was, it was, it was very bizarre. Wow. We, yeah. I think we can no, keep that's, that. That's, that's a good enough reason to become a sitcom writer is, yeah. To have someone do uh, Scientology mind tricks on you. Those are that, those are always those are always good stories when you yeah can you go hang out <laughs> with the cast hang out yeah and then what uh, about um, when when Cloris Leachman is far from the craziest person at the table. <laughs> she was she was pretty wild yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did I ever work? I'm trying to remember if I ever worked with her on something. I think I did, but I can't remember what it was. Got to be just just shoot me. It might have been. I don't remember. I, I you know. Well, okay. Well, let's get to baby. Let's get to the what everyone wants to talk about. Baby Bob. Oh, <laughs> let's go. You let's, save the best for last. I save the best for last. Let's talk about baby. Well, I, I believe that Baby Bob was the highest rated show that I've ever been on. But they canceled it so fast. They canceled it. Yes. Um, I think that was a that was a disconnect where. The high, high ups, meaning um, like Les Moonves when he was running CBS, mm -hmm. I think he wanted Baby Bob to be on the air. 
Uh, and so they, he developed it like two or three times with multiple casts. Right. We got to have a talking baby. And it was, and, but the, but the talking baby always stayed the same based on these uh, commercials. Was it Geico? Yes. I think it's Geico commercials with the baby Bob, with baby Bob interviewing Shaq is yeah. it's the concept that got everyone uh, all hot and bothered. Um, and so, so uh, Les Moonves bought the show. This is my version of the story. I'm sure it's, only partially accurate um but he didn't really include the lower level executives who absolutely hated the show and so as brian and i got hired on the show we thought hey it's a cbs show they must like the show but the reaction from the executives after every table read was basically how dare you how dare, how dare you have the baby talk how dare you what like just everything about the show seemed to offend the the CBS executives who were in charge of the show. Were, were there any of the advertising guys in it? Were they involved at all? Um, no, not. I don't think so. Kenny uh, Kenny Campbell was the voice and mouth of the baby. Uh-huh. Um, and then actually, I didn't know much about babies when I was on the show. But then now when I look back, I realize how creepy it is that a baby has a full set of adult teeth. Yeah. That yeah. are prominent. <laughs> if I saw a baby like that in real life, I would run. Do so you think that was the problem with the show? Is <laughs> <laughs> the baby's teeth? Well, well, um, the Mike Saltzman, my dear friend who yeah, created, created the show, described it as Frasier and they happen to have a talking baby. Uh, the other, so the other, oh, Frazier had, okay. Frazier. Right. And they just happen to have a talking baby. Yes. I them that, that was, that was Mike's. And was, was it Mike's. like, what were the writers? Did, uh, yeah. um, I, I don't have a lot of memories. Okay. <laughs> there were a lot of late nights. And oh. one night, I think it was about midnight that I got into a shouting match with one of the other writers about whether or not Baby Bob was a genius. Right. And the other writer was taking the stance of he's not a genius. He's only talking at six months. Mozart was writing symphonies at at five or seven. And I was shouting and I was yelling about the other side that Mozart was not talking at six, at six months. And was so, everyone looking at you're both out of your minds? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, like, it's midnight. Can I go home? Can I go home? How do we get the baby to dance? That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, that, but, 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 I mean, part of the lesson there is even a show that you think is so, so simple or terrible that you could write it in, in its, in your sleep. Uh-huh. It's not that way. No. Because no. even a show like that is very hard to write. Yes. Yes. Because that, you have so many layers of people to please. Yes. People ask me, is they say is a is a is a great show hard to write than a bad show? And no, they're all they're all kind of hard to write for different reasons. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And that that was, I mean, definitely a lesson. And then another lesson was despite what we felt. Like I like it. It is sort of embarrassing um, to be on a show like Baby Bob mm. when you're on the Paramount lot, and then the Frasier golf cart drives by, <laughs> and you're in the same business, but you're not in the same business. But when it came to the ratings, Baby Bob did huge in the ratings. Yeah, and it was like one of the top. I think it's one of the top new comedies that year. And that's so interesting. And that's that's the thing people don't realize as well, is that you may be a great writer, but if you're in this lane, it's hard to get out of that lane because that's how people see you. Yes. And if you're in a great, even if you're even a bad writer on a great show, now you're in that lane. You're in a great, you're, you know, you, you're inflated. So yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah people don't quite realize that. Um, yeah. Um, and you take, you got to take the job you got to get. You You take the job you get. You know, so and and, yeah. and you really and you really don't know if it's going to pan out. No, uh, like I remember talking to um, uh, Al Jean and Mike Reese mm-hmm. when we worked with them and asking them, 
when they got started, they started on the started on the Simpsons. Um, I think coming off of Gary Shandling's show, and when they were pitched coming on to do this cartoon on Fox, right. um, they thought I think that they thought it was it was not good for their career. It would kill their career. And, yeah. And now it would make no difference. Honestly, now you just, you take a job, you know, whatever job you can get, you take the job, you know. Yeah. But back then you could make decisions, you could make choices. Yes, yeah, I, yeah. And, and interestingly, like back when Brian and I were making lists of shows we would want to be on, uh-huh. Simpsons was like a C-level list at the time. Uh-huh, really? We liked it, but we thought it was imminently, we, we didn't, no one still knew it was going to be on the air 40 years later. Yeah. And, you know, cause, cause being on the Simpsons, I think it was like uncool. Then it became cool. Then it was uncool. Well, in a way it's a little bit of, it's almost golden handcuffs. If you're on the show that that's, if you're on the Simpsons now, you, you're not going to leave because it's yeah. job security and uh, get ready to, for writing Bart jokes for the rest of your career, you know? Yeah. Uh, but the crazy thing is that, there are writers who are still there who were there when I was in the mailroom at United Talent. Sure. Yeah. So th- there are people they've made who, a career at it. Who yes. So I was in the I was on the business side of the business. I became an executive and then I was a writer for 25 years. Yeah. And they're still doing the job from the day I got into the business. It's so interesting. It's just so yeah. it's and I would think creatively it's hard. But uh, you know, you the money will make will make you feel better, you know. If money makes a lot of things feel better. <laughs> you crying to your dollar bill. <laughs> fifty dollar bill. Is there a fifty dollar hundred dollar bill? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know what a fifty dollar bill looks like. It's fascinating, <laughs> dude. Thank you so much. Yeah. We had a good chat. We had a yeah. good chat, Steve. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. This is I I don't know. I'm always fascinating in in learning people's journeys and how they got there. And so thank you so much for, for being on my little show. Uh, thank you. And, and hopefully you have stuff that you don't have to cut. Oh, <laughs> sorry, folks. If you heard the version that the edited version, we had to trash a lot of stuff. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much. Remember, we offer we got a lot of great stuff for you on my website. You can get on my newsletter. You get my free uh, all that stuff. Go to michaeljammon.com and find out what we got there. And I got a. Uh, uh, another webinar coming up. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. Uh, until next next week, keep writing. This has been an episode of Screenwriters Need to Hear This with Michael Jamin and Phil Hudson. If you'd like to support this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, and sharing this podcast with someone who needs to hear today's subject. For free daily screenwriting tips, follow Michael on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Michael Jamin Writer. You can follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Phil A. Hudson. This episode was produced by Phil Hudson and edited by Dallas Crane. Until next time, keep writing.